It's Thursday, April 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There's a new crop of tech startups making prescription drugs available without ever needing to talk directly to a doctor. On these sites, people self-diagnose, select a drug, and then they enter some personal health and credit card info. Then a doctor assesses your choice, approves it, and boom, you get your medicine. Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios, joins us for how these sites are doing an end run around doctors' traditional role in the system. Next, when was the last time you heard about the draft? Did you know that failing to register for the draft could have a bunch of long-term consequences? Want to get federal student aid, citizenship, or even a federal job? It's all impossible if you didn't register for the draft by age 26. Gregory Cordy, reporter for USA Today, joins us for what happens when you fail to register. Finally, people over 65 will soon make up the largest single age group in the U.S. The culture and content of the internet has historically been determined by people who have access multiplied by those who have the most time to spend on it. In the next decade, it's going to be more old people, and they are increasingly targeted by scams and fake news. Craig Silverman, reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for why we need to increase digital literacy in older Americans. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Something that most people don't know is that ED is often the first sign of a far more serious underlying condition. Diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, commonly associated with obesity and depression. So what we do actually is we work with them to treat them for, for their ED and then identify the underlying cause and improve their overall health. Joining us now is Sam Baker, healthcare editor for Axios. There's a new crop of tech startups that is making getting prescription drugs available without ever needing to look a doctor in the eye. A lot of people are referring to it as restaurant menu medicine. Tell us a little bit about these startups because there's a lot of murky territory going on with what they're doing. Yeah, that's right. They're selling some of the same drugs that you've always seen advertised online, Viagra, some other fertility treatments. But this is something different. This is a new kind of website. These are legal. You know, it's not some sort of shady overseas pharmacy. What they are websites where you go on, you fill out a survey or questionnaire, and then the site sends that to a doctor. The doctor reviews that and says, okay, your prescriptions in the mail. They got a bunch of different names like Roman, Hers, Hims, Kick. <laughs> the names are pretty simplistic, but they're selling things like you said, generic Viagra, hair growth medications, different things like that, things for low libido. The way they describe themselves is interesting also. They're saying that they're almost like Uber in a sense where Uber is not necessarily a transportation company. They're a platform that just connects people. They're kind of using that same model, that same wording, that they're just an online platform that are connecting patients with doctors so they can get their prescriptions. That is an argument that you've seen tech companies make Uber in particular to sort of avoid some of the responsibility that would otherwise come with being in the business of actually providing the thing you provide. You know, if Uber is a transportation company, then Uber would be responsible for how much its drivers make and things like that. And then these tech companies are saying, look, we're not a healthcare company. We don't employ these doctors. We're not treating anyone. We're just a go-between between you and a doctor. How do these work? Because one of the big problems is that people basically self-diagnose themselves. They say, hey, I maybe have an ED problem. I need this generic Viagra. So they're doing that. Then they select what they want. They enter some personal health information, some credit card information on these websites. And then there's really no in-person consultation with a real doctor. And they get approved and then 
few weeks later or something like that, they get all their medications that they were looking for. A couple of New York Times reporters used some of these sites to get prescriptions for a couple different drugs. They found one instance in which uh, the drug was being marketed for a use that the FDA hasn't approved, which is illegal. In another case, one of the reporters got the, the note back from the doctor saying, okay, you're, you're approved, here's your prescription. Didn't even have the doctor's name, much less any identifying information or credentials to prove that they're a real doctor. We're getting really far away from the idea that you go to the doctor, tell them your symptoms, and then they use their clinical judgment to pick among the array of treatments that could be available to you. We've all seen stories about the rise of telemedicine and things like that, or video conferencing with your doctor. And for simple things, they can prescribe you stuff over those platforms there. But this is not that. I mean, they're having you fill out these online questionnaires and, and then they kind of say, okay, they could probably need a drug and then they'll just approve it right away. I mean, I know it's murky legal territory, but it doesn't seem like that is all legal. The most focus so far has been on Viagra and some other fertility treatments, which some people would sort of consider lifestyle drugs, and maybe the stakes are a little bit lower, but, uh, you know, every drug has side effects. And some of these sites are also selling things like blood pressure medication. And yeah, as you said, no doctor is looking you in the face or hearing your tone of voice or necessarily taking a particularly good medical history for you. And that just opens up a lot of concerns, both about the legal profession and surely at least some patient safety issues too. Who are these doctors that are working with these online startups? This is just sort of consulting work for them. They're paid by the hour. They're not paid by the prescription, which would obviously be a real problem. They just sign up. They say, I'll do X number of hours of consultation. They spend that time reviewing these questionnaires that people fill out. And then it all goes through the website back to the patient. One of them in particular is being consulted by a former Surgeon General to make sure things are all up and up on the legal front. So they're blurring those lines, but they're totally getting away with it as of now. Yeah, and I mean, one thing that is worth noting, maybe in their defense, is it kind of works this way already. You know, when you see a commercial on TV that says, ask your doctor oh, yeah. if such and so drug is right for you, people do. Patients are already going into the doctor's office saying, you know, I think I need XYZ drug. And, you know, I don't have scientific evidence to, to back this up, but anecdotally, most of the time you get the drug. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just kind of the go-between even there. It's uh, it, <laughs> That's the thing, as you yeah. mentioned, this is taking away that in-person visit with the doctor and just making it so much more impersonal that way. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any more investigation into these types of startups. And I'm sure as they gain in popularity, people are going to start taking a deeper look into these. Sam Baker, healthcare editor for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A lot of people don't even realize that they may have registered. As you yeah. said, a lot of people register either when they apply for a driver's license or they apply for student loans. But fewer and fewer young people are getting driver's licenses. Joining us now is Gregory Cordy, reporter for USA Today. We're going to be talking about something I really just have not thought of for a long time, the draft, selective service. I think for most people, I had to rack my brain to figure out how I signed up for this. And I, and I come to the conclusion, I think I signed up when I got my driver's license. But for a lot of people that fail to register for the draft, it has a lot of 
serious long-term consequences, most notably with getting government benefits or even getting a government job? Yeah, we haven't had a draft in the United States since the Vietnam War. And so it's something that it's still an obligation for every American man who turns 18 to register with Selective Service. But it's something that's sort of, you know, been so pushed back to the back burner that a lot of people don't even realize that they may have registered. As you said, a lot of people register either when they apply for a driver's license or they apply for student loans. But fewer and fewer young people are getting driver's licenses. The driver's license legislation varies from state to state. And so there's about 10% of the population that, for whatever reason, never ends up registering for the draft. We don't arrest people. We don't prosecute people criminally for failing to register for the draft anymore. But what we do have is this series of collateral consequences that ranges from ineligibility for federal jobs, sometimes state jobs, student aid, citizenship, all these kinds of things that you can't get if you fail to sign up for selective service. And the kicker is that you have a sort of an eight-year window. Technically, you're supposed to sign up within 30 days of your 18th birthday. But in practicality, how it works is that you have until you're 27. But if you don't register by the time you're 26, you can no longer register. And so some of these consequences can be permanent. And then the appeal process that goes through this, let's say you are going to school later in life and you do want to get some student loans, but you never signed up. And now you have to go through this process to try to appeal it or whatnot. I mean, that could be lengthy and costly. You have to go back and talk to your parents and see if you willingly didn't sign up for it. There's all sorts of stuff to go through. Exactly. The law actually says that you can't be penalized for failing to sign up for the draft if your failure wasn't knowing and willful. So if you say, I refuse, I don't believe in the draft, I refuse to sign up for selective service, then you can be denied these benefits. But the problem is, it's kind of like proving a negative, right? It's yeah. like like going back in time and it's sort of proving that you didn't intentionally not do something. And so it's a really hard thing to prove. And there are lawyers who, who do this. It can cost four or $5,000 to present your case to some government agency, depending on what the benefit is. It can take a year or two In the meantime, if you're a student and you want to go back to school to get a degree to better your life somehow, you're not getting the student aid. You may have missed your chance at that federal job. My sense is that a lot of men might not even bother. But what I got here in this story and and what I think I'm reporting for the first time is some selective service data that, that suggests that more than 1 million American men who have fallen into this trap, they didn't register by the time they were 26, and now they can no longer do it, and they've been denied some sort of benefit. And the other part of this, too, is that there could be some change on the horizon, Congress had created a commission to study this, and they're expecting a report of the future of the draft to be due next year, and they're examining things as should the draft registration be mandatory. I guess courts also decided that the draft is unconstitutional because it doesn't figure in the role that women play in the military now. So there's that's another wrinkle in this whole thing. You know, will they be changing those standards? It was President Carter who reinstated the draft in 1980. The Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan and President Carter thought that we, you know, would need at least this deterrent effect of being able to show to the world that we can draft large numbers of men into the military. But at the time, 
President Carter wanted to expand the draft to include women. Congress didn't want to do that. At the time, still, you know, most combat roles were off limits to women. It was still mostly male military. But over the past 40 years or so, more and more women have participated in the all-volunteer military. And for the past couple of years, we've now opened up every single job you can think of in the military, uh, fighter pilots and infantry. And there's no job in the military that a woman is barred from doing. And so the argument is, why do we still have an all-male draft requirement? And that's why now a judge has struck down the all-male draft. Congress has been diddling around on this for years and years. It's been a thorny issue for them. And so they've punted to this National Commission on Military Service. And so in the next year or two, we are gearing up for a renewed debate over, should we have a draft at all? Should it include men and women? Should the draft be voluntary or mandatory? If it's mandatory, how should it be enforced? And that's where all of these other consequences come in. Gregory Cordy, reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Anytime. There are four different studies, all very recent research studies that looked at Twitter, that looked at Facebook, that looked at general web browsing, that all found there was a significant factor that age was a significant factor in terms of people consuming and sharing fake news. Joining us now is Craig Silverman, reporter for BuzzFeed News. We often hear about when we're talking about the internet, how important it is for young people to learn how to operate on the internet, the digital literacy. You know, be careful what you post for privacy reasons. Be careful what you post because employers look at it and it could bite you in the ass later, different things like that. But we're also forgetting about uh, the other side of that spectrum is older Americans. Increasingly, older Americans are going to start becoming the biggest demographic in the country, and they're increasingly spending more time on the Internet. And a lot of them might not really know how to operate in that space also. That's why they're susceptible to a lot of scams and things like that. So tell us a little bit about the aging population and how they're going to be changing the Internet as we see it pretty soon. There's a really significant demographic shift taking place in the United States and also in countries like Canada and elsewhere where it won't be that long before there will be more people 65 and over. That will be the biggest single demographic compared to younger demographics. That's that's a big change. And what's also happening, of course, is that people who are now, say, in their 50s or people who are now in their 60s, they're going to continue getting older. They'll If they're online now, they'll continue to stay online as they get older. But also a lot of folks who are already over 65 are getting online because they want to be in touch with family, because, you know, they need a cell phone, because that's the only way their family members will talk to them by text right. and that kind of thing. And so we have this massive population that is going to be a lot older than ever before on, and on the Internet in bigger numbers than ever before. And so right now it's really hard to exactly know what that's going to look like. But some of the experts and people I talked to, they, you know, one person said that basically the Internet usually has been determined what was on it and the culture of the internet was determined by the people who had access multiplied by the people who had time to be online a lot. And older people, if they're retired, they have a lot of time. They're going online. They're using it in cases where they're isolated to really substitute for connections and in some cases a social life. And it is creating some potentially dangerous scenarios that really people have not been addressing at all. And it's something we need to talk about more. Talk about some of these studies that have been done already. 
about older Americans and their online habits. As we said at the beginning, you know, they're increasingly susceptible to things like fake news and they share it a lot on Facebook. We've got a growing amount of research and, and pretty good quality research coming from a variety of sources that is really starting to paint a picture that suggests that people, particularly over 65, are very much struggling in this information ecosystem. And I don't say that to, you know, want to single them out or to shame them in any way. I mean, I think a lot of us at times at different times struggle in what is a very chaotic information environment. But there are four different studies, all very recent research studies that looked at Twitter, that looked at Facebook, that looked at general web browsing, that all found there was a significant factor, that age was a significant factor in terms of people consuming and sharing fake news. And they defined fake news by kind of a set of sites that were known for creating and spreading 100% false stuff. And then there's other data, as you mentioned, that tried to ask older people as well as people in other age groups to get their sense of their understanding of how algorithms play a role in determining what is showing up, for example, in your Facebook newsfeed. And for older people, they didn't really understand that there was this process of kind of machine learning that is looking at what they're doing and surfacing content based on what they tend to interact with, the pages they've liked, their friends. They, in some cases, thought there were sort of, you know, actual human editors there deciding that. They showed a worse sense of kind of recall of the news brands, of the websites that they would have visited. And so if they're not really paying attention to that, it is possible that they end up on lower quality sources. And so you have all of these stacking up against each other. And you put another thing in there, which is that older people are absolutely being targeted with scams and fraud online, and they are falling victim to them. Just last month, the Department of Justice announced a major elder fraud sweep where they announced that roughly about 2 million people have been targeted. And they said the majority of those were actually elderly Americans. And so these folks are being targeted. They seem to have less skills to navigate this environment. And as a result of that, they're being targeted with misinformation, disinformation, scams, hoaxes, a wide variety of really bad things on the internet. They don't necessarily have the defenses to put up against them. Where's all of this taking place? Because there's a big gap in the media habits between generations right now. It's tough to say for sure, but it really seems like we're at a moment right now where there is a bigger gap between the media habits of the young and the media habits of the old than, than ever before. And part of that, of course, is we have this huge expansive media environment where there are so many choices and so many different things that you can do. And so because it's so different for young and old, what we see, for example, is that older people continue to, to watch linear TV, they continue to watch cable news, and then they're also very active on Facebook. In fact, since 2011, older people have been the biggest single demographic joining Facebook. And so younger people were there before, but now older people are joining in droves over the last eight years. And that's actually, I think, in some cases, one reason why younger people are looking to other platforms. So you have different habits. They're not necessarily in the same places. And you've talked before about family members helping people with technology. You know, if they're not necessarily in the same places, you don't see what they're sharing. You don't see what they're consuming. And so a lot of times I've spoken to relatives and people who are shocked to suddenly look on their relative's phone, look on their web browser and see what they've actually been doing and consuming. And there's people who are in their 30s and 40s who are already feeling like they're aging out of some of the newer emerging technologies. I think in your article, you said something, an avid Facebook in their 40s may already be puzzled by TikTok. And we kind of know about those things because we look at news all the time. But, you know, am I a regular user of TikTok? 
not right now, you know, so you're already kind of aging out of these things as you go. So this is something that we all have to think about is this idea that maybe we at a certain point kind of age out of what's happening on the internet. And the flip side of that is when you have so many more older people, does that mean that they might actually be able to hold the internet in stasis in some areas for themselves? Or does it mean that, you know, the change continues to happen and you have that many more people who are just not keeping up with it? And we don't actually know how that's going to play out. But it's definitely the case where anybody who is really fluent in the internet at one point in their life could very easily just suddenly find themselves really behind. And so it's not an intelligence thing. It's it's really something that can happen just over the span of time and as we age and, and don't engage as much. I'm already afraid of that happening to me. So we'll see how this all turns out. Craig Silverman, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>